I want that one thing that's like that that version of that song where somebody like hacked it to be I'm a bitch, I'm a bitch, I'm a bitch. I'm a sinner. Yeah. It's just like, just such as ever and ever again. Yeah, it's pretty great. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Big Steppy. I am your host, Scarlett, and my pronouns are she and her. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host and wife, Alice. Hi, my name is Alice, and my pronouns are also she and her. As a point of order, I would like to say it is not the afternoon. That is okay. Hey, look, it says afternoon in the script, and we don't know when people are going to listen to this. We're recording it at night, though. (laughs) So, we took a little holiday break from recording that you all probably won't notice because of our upload schedule. We have quite a backlog that will be going up before you even hear this. But, uh... Our last recorded episode was our special episode on Gundam F91, a film we had really strong feelings about. Uh, So strong, in fact, that the episode runtime approached the film runtime, which, sorry. (laughs) This week, though, we are returning to our progressive watch-through of Gundam Wing. Today, we're covering the events of episodes 12 to 15, or as I like to call them, the continuation of the Everything Screwed arc. Alex, we have a lot of recap to get into, so uh, let's get started. I'm going to toss the ball to you. Talk to me about episode 12. All right. So before we start, we're going to be a little heavier on the kind of talking about what actually happens, partially because a lot of things happened. Just a ton of things. So be ready for it. Let's start with episode uh, 12. This is kind of a Wufei episode, but we don't start with him. We start with Hiro Yui who, if you recall, blew himself up two episodes ago after the whole, like, stand down or we'll blow up the colonies. Oh, no! And then he blows himself up. He's being taken care of by Troa. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, they're with the circus, right? They are. They are. Yeah, I thought so. I thought he was still with them. And um, Troa tells him he's been out for a month. And in that time, Oz has begun to, like, they started their coup, but they've actually... It's progressed into a full-out war against the last holdouts of the Alliance military who didn't surrender, and it's gone very well for them. They've also apparently gone to, into a state of war with several independent nations who resist Oz control, who kind of side of the Alliance, and we actually get to see that. Meanwhile, in so this is kind of implied to be China. It could be China. It could be Vietnam. It could be Thailand. It's somewhere in the Sino-Asian Peninsula. Yeah, and... I just wrote the script Meanwhile in China. Yeah. Um, I do want to actually make the point real quick here that this is an interesting thing that that you, you'll you you'll notice now that you're a little older watching this is they don't mention country names. And practically speaking, it's probably because, you know, a lot of stuff gets blown up. Don't want to offend anybody. But also, it's interesting for the story... Because it kind of implies that, I don't know, to me at least it suggests that the political landscape of Earth at this point is drastically different from what ours is in the present day. I kind of get the feeling from this episode that what we would call China or this area is in fact multiple nations that we would not recognize. It feels like we went back to 1930s warlord China in a way with the military cliques. But anyway, Major Sally's there. 
and she's still cool. She's volunteering in a resistance movement in a one of these countries, and they're trying to fight the military junta who's in control of the government. And while she's there, she runs into Wu Fei, who is just like you know BSOD'd about losing to Trey's. How oh I can't I'm not I'm not strong enough to fight in Nataku. Uh, I, was, I have no right to pilot Nataku. Uh, and he's just like really, really bummed because I mean they they lost very badly. Um, he didn't even do anything wrong, and it still fucked up. No, he did absolutely everything wrong. He one v one trays outside of his mech. When no, he had a no, kill I'm shot. talking about. What if they did everything wrong? Don't you lie to me? No, no. I'm talking about like I mean it wasn't he he didn't do anything wrong with the whole helping the Oz helping Oz take over the Alliance. Oh no, he 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 was the only one who didn't do that. I'm just saying that like if we're yeah. gonna say Wufei did nothing wrong, Wufei he did, did nothing wrong in one specific instance. It was not that one was not on him. He's kind of disgusted with himself, but he's also disgusted not entirely disgusted because more just baffled because Sally and her and her companions seem way too weak. They don't have the manpower. They don't have the technology. They don't have the sort of, in his mind, they don't have the will. And Sally just doesn't give a shit and just keeps going. Wu Fei just drifts off on a boat as he refuses to fight, uh, marking his second bizarre exit. It is beautiful scene. It's very weird. It's just not, it, it feels like it's, it feels like it's from a completely different show. And Wu Fei just wandered in from like a shonen anime somewhere else. Yeah, it, it's very funny. Like, he comes in, beats up some soldiers who are being mean to Sally, and as she kind of goes, hey, you should maybe consider not, like, spending the rest of your life beating yourself up for your one major failure, Wu Fei just steps into a rowboat in a nearby canal, and without actually touching the oars or anything, the boat doesn't appear to be secured to the dock, so it just floats <laughs> away with him standing in it, and he's just going to Sally like, I don't have any right to fight. Wufei, you have every right to fight. I don't have any right to fight. And he just, like, drifts away. Wufei <laughs> right. is so weird in this episode. So, like, the military... So, like, the government, the actual junta is, like, decides to, they're going to reject supporting Oz because they see them as kind of, like, this is a foreign invasion. Like, the alliance was bad enough, but at least they were stable. These people are an unknown quantity. We, they seem... They might be even worse. They this they cause a lot of chaos. We don't want any part of this. But one of the one of the actual generals that Sally and her uh, partisans have been fighting directly uh, decides that he's going to actually invite Oz in. And their plan is to blow up not only uh, the resistance but his own forces who are out are more loyal to the Junta. And in the, after the chaos is done, Oz will put him in control. I, I it should be specified here it's not just a general it's the military dictator the yeah. guy who was already in charge yeah so like against the wills of his uh basically it's against the will of the rest of his sort of like coterie so they attack the resistance they're able to find resistance camp and attack it and wufei is not sure what to do he's not peril he's still like i can't he's still convinced he can't pilot the thing and around him these people who do not have access to Gundams are actually trying to fight back with antiquated artillery and stuff. And Sally refuses to back down when confronted face-to-face -face with an enemy mobile suit about to eradicate her. And that prompts his ass into gear. 
and he does play with Nataku again, wipes all of them out, kills the uh, kills the general, and basically just kind of jets out of there. Like it is for Wu Fei episodes. This is probably the first Wu Fei episode that's good. Yeah, he has an actual arc here. Like we've seen him arrogant and sure of himself. He fails horrifically and like has to confront his own ideological obsessions and kind of sees firsthand that like his definitions of strength are kind of not adequate. And it's not like he's a changed man completely afterwards, but you do get the feeling that the Wu Fei that we saw earlier in the sort of like, let's be terrorists arc is a little less here. Yeah. All right. On from that. Uh, let's do episode 13. So episode 13 is a lie if you watch it on Crunchyroll. The summary states that this episode's about Troa. It's not. I'll get to that. Troa does get to do some cool shit in it, though. So we cut back to Troa and Hiro, still recuperating in the traveling circus. Troa learns that the circus he's been hiding with this whole time has been invited to perform their act for an Oz military base. Troa discusses what he should do with Hiro and reveals some interesting information. Project Meteor was not something most of the people on his colony were in favor of. It was carried out by a small minority of the colonists, which included him. So we get confirmation that Troa is a partisan. We'll talk about that in a bit. You that one great song, the version of the partisan that's in, um, it's one of the Wolfenstein games. That, in your head, that's what Troa is. Yeah. So... Let's let's not talk about Troa for a few minutes. Let's not talk about these fools. It's Zex times. Uh, most of this episode is taken up on a side story told between Zex and two side characters we will never see again because they're dead. They get an entire five-minute introduction, though. Alex and Mueller, the mech pilots known as Blue Angel and Red Cancer. That's their call signs. They pilot the same kind of grunt mechs that Gundams can cut through with ease. Specifically, Alex pilots an Ares with a blue paint job, and Mueller pilots a Cancer. Wait, hold up. I just realized, isn't the Cancer red? Yes. They're blue and red, Odie! I just realized that. I'm dumb. I'm dumb as hell. Yes! It's blue and red, Odie. I mean, they're both kind of red, Odie, but, like... Yeah, they're, red they're, Odie. that is literally what they're doing. I'm dumb. Okay, continue. <laughs> okay, so despite piloting grunt mechs that the Gundams can cut through with ease. These two are capable of destroying an entire Alliance military base on their own. They rock up, blow up every mobile suit sent out to attack them, and it's a pretty cool sequence. Unfortunately, it turns dark because they're also deplorable bastards. In the base command attempts to surrender, they inform him that this isn't an attack, it's an execution, and they just kill everyone. Uh, refusing to accept terms of surrender, and slaughtering everyone stationed on the base. Things come to a head when Alex and Mueller decide to resupply at the Lake Victoria base that Zex is staging his tests of the Tall Geese at, and where he's also reconstructing the Gundam wing. Alex and Mueller clearly think of Zex as not only disloyal to Oz, but also as a potentially corrupting influence on Lieutenant Noin, who was their teacher. These are two of the ace pilots Noin has trained. Some of them apparently survive. When Alex and Mueller find out that Zex is the only fully trained soldier on the Lake Victoria base, 
everyone else is either a trainee or support. They request his help with attacking an alliance fortress. Zex goes along with their plan. Uh, he even offers to essentially be their subordinate for the mission, even though he outranks them. The attack on the fortress goes really well. Zex is given the job of drawing the firepower of the base's giant cannon, which launches... This is a very cool sci-fi gun. It launches a what looks like a single shell that actually opens into multiple explosives that just hit a wide area. Not only does he manage to direct its fire inland and away from the oncoming Oz troops, he also is able to pilot the Talgi so well that he escapes the payload completely. It's a wide just area that's covered in explosions. He gets ahead of it after they launch the shot. And he personally wipes out a large number of the mobile suits stationed at this base. Zex requests that the base's command surrender. The commander does. But uh, if you've been paying attention, yeah, Alex and Mueller just do the same shit they did at the last base and begin slaughtering everyone anyway, regardless of their decision to surrender. Zex countermands the order to kill everyone. And while one of the Oz troops is frozen trying to figure out whose orders to follow, the commander of the base fires a retaliatory shot from one of the remaining cannons and blows him the fuck up. Alex and Mueller blame Zex and start attacking him. They may be good, Zex is better. Those two die real hard. He bisects, I believe, uh, Alex's mech and the Mueller's mech. I've mixed up which one is Alex and which one is Mueller. Mueller is the one in the Ares. Alex is the one in the Cancer. Mueller gets bisected, and Zex explicitly takes a minute before killing Alex to tell him, you're really good at piloting. You're not as good as me. And then just blows him the fuck up. I think I do need to sort of like, I do need to, I, I do need to like really kind of explain here. We've, we've kind of joked about how Gundam is a show about people and big robots doing war crimes. And I first to say when we do that, it is because having watched it a bunch of times, you do, you can become a little desensitized to the, to the virus there. I had watched this already. When I watched this again for the podcast, this kind of unsettled me. This episode, watching them do this, it is really fucked up. Like, it is incredible. And I think what made it even super more fucked up was that it was, you got to watch them do it and talk about doing it. Yeah. And it's so obvious that they see these people as subhuman. And it is frightening. Like, it is legitimately kind of took me aback. I'm like, Christ, uh, for a second, like when it, when it became obvious just how weirdly fucked up they were, because I was not expecting that level of personal brutality, because you see a lot of it in this show and in a lot of other Gundam shows, but it's generally abstracted. It's a thing you see off in the distance, not something you get to sit and listen to the like cartoonishly evil man joke to his compatriot about how nice uh, the smell of burning um, surrendering soldiers smell. Like, it's super fucked up. And I liked Zex already, but God, do I like Zex more after this episode. Holy shit. He's just, like, it's so obviously, like, that he is only here because he knows these guys are like this. Yeah. He is just waiting. Like, 
the world is out of alignment, and Zex is here to single-handedly beat every motherfucker who's bad. He's there for a couple of reasons. Some of it is just, arguably, he's testing the capabilities of the Tall Geeks against the Noventa Cannon, which we're going to talk about uh, later. I actually want to talk about the fucking cannon on this base, because I think it's one of my favorite pieces of world building. But, you know, some of it's that he wants to test the Tall Geeks. But yeah, you really do get the sense that he came along knowing this would happen. He actually, after those two are dead, when he gives instructions to one of his subordinates to send a report to Noin, he says, tell her next time with the next group of pilots, she should teach them something other than how to pilot. Like, he is utterly disappointed with them. And a little bit with her. Yeah, like, it it, it, it does kind of hurt the heart a little bit to see him be disappointed and annoying. Like, it's not, like, super disappointment. It's more of a, this should not have been something that I had to even get to this point because I warned you about what happens when you try to te- the, you were going to try to teach these people. I told you that this is how people be. I warned like, you about stairs, bro. It hurts. It genuinely kind of hurts because Noin and Zex are weirdly just they're kind of pure. Yeah. It just sucks. I'm like, ah, come on. I almost didn't want to say anything to her about it. Yeah. So, before the end of the episode, we cut back to the circus. And it turns out Troa has made a plan, and he goes through with it. Uh, During the performance of the circus at this Oz military base, he turns up the spotlight and reveals the Gundam heavy arms. And he blows up all of their fuel storage tanks. Uh, He also confirms that this particular base is definitely holding not just fuel tanks for normal military operations, but specifically the kind of fuel you'd need for rockets. Oz is trying to get into space to directly menace the colonies at some point. So after he blows up all of the everything, he prepares to self-detonate so that he can't be used as leverage against the colonies. But uh, his friend Catherine who you might remember as the knife thrower, who he didn't act with way earlier in the series, intercedes. He literally runs up, forces him to open his cockpit, and then punches him in the face and tells him off for not thinking highly enough of his own life and not, you know, considering the fact that killing himself would really suck for the people he leaves behind. I like Catherine. She's pretty cool. Yep. In the end of the episode, Troa and Hero put the heavy arms on the back of Troa's flatbed truck, and they drive off to parts unknown, leaving the circus behind. And that brings us neatly to episode 14. Yes. Episode 14. All right. So, Troa and Hero made their way to Marseille. So, like, we both saw Marseille here, right? I'm going to say Marseille. It's Marseille! Marseille, Marseille, Marseille. France isn't real. French is a dumb you language. It's Marseille. On my side. Born in Baton Rouge. The, yeah, Baton Rouge is a good name, unlike Marseille, which is a treaty and not a town. That's Marseille. Yeah, right. Marseille. Marseille. Okay, um, no. okay. Joke aside, like, okay, just to make sure, it looks like it, but is it actually? Do they say it's that? Saying, it, it, right. It's Marseille. It really is. Okay. Marseille. I wanted to make I sure. Can't. Because, like, I remember looking at it and being like, this looks exactly like every depiction of coastal France I've ever seen. So when you wrote Marseille, I was just like, okay, yeah. And But I wanted to check to make sure. Yeah, it's literally Marseille. 
like I said earlier, not a lot of places get name dropped on Earth, and this is kind of un- mildly unusual. Yeah. Uh, this is, um, it's Marseille and Moscow are, I think, two of the actual city names that we've confirmed. So, apparently France exists. So, Dumb France Town and, um, and the heart of Mother Mother Russia. Anyway, I was saying, so Tro and Hero go there. That's where the granddaughter of Marshall Naventa is. If you don't remember, it's okay. He gets name dropped a couple of times before he dies horribly. That's the guy who was, that's sort of the alliance leader who was leading the effort for the alliance to try and not only disarm, like unilaterally, but to try to work out peaceful coexistence with the colonies and put an end to everything. Basically fix literally all of the problems. Well, not all of the problems, but like the immediate military problems. And just as he gets to the point where he can finally do this thing that he's wanted to do, he is assassinated by Hero with his big old laser sword because Hero was led to believe that he is the leader, one of the leaders of Oz on his his getaway shuttle, which sucks. Oz is here in the area actually fighting, they're planning to attack the base, which also kind of the nearby base, which sucks. Relina comes back into the story, one of the best characters of all time, and she attends a summit held by the Rumfeller Foundation, and they just kind of let her because she's a, with Zex, and she is nobility, and that's the only thing they care about. I should mention two things. One, she's being escorted by Noin, and two, we have not talked about the Rumfeller Foundation yet, because they weren't important until this moment. This is where we find out who they are. They are the company that provided the basis for mobile suits as mass-producible technology of war. They yeah. own the patents on everything. It's probably good at this point. Okay, let me get through some like basically the uh, this this point, and then I'll go back and talk about the Rumfeller because we do need to talk about it. This is where we have to reshuffle our factions again. So she goes to this um, summit held by this incredibly, incredibly powerful kind of multi international Zambatsu kind of like Zambatsu kind of like conglomerate. Did you just say Zambatsu? Uh, God, what's it Zimbots. called? I'm sorry. I'm Zambats. Whatever. I'm dumb. Everyone hates me. Ah. Okay, um, but she's there. I don't Representative you. I love you. Oh, I love you too. Aww. Anyway, so our representative gets up, big fluffy haired aristocrat. They're all big fluffy haired, big collars, aristocrats. They look really stupid. Like in universe, they look kind of dumb. But he gets up in front of all the other wealthy aristocrats with no chins and says, like, he argues sort of like, Freedom, equality, and democracy, you know, the the French things, you know, egalitaire or whatever. That shit is all dumb, and it's time for all the rich, no-chin people with really thin blood to take over and rule everything. Resounding applause. There hasn't been a good ruler since the Habsburgs, and we aim to correct that. Honestly, after a while, the chins became, started mutating back in. And frankly, that was when things went wrong. <laughs> Let's talk about the Rumfellers. So, this is about the time when you begin to realize that there are way too many factions in this fucking show. <laughs> so we started with, the colonies have a scattered resistance, and the Alliance is a, like, half-UN, half-world government who has been bullying space and eventually did some military interventions on several colonies. We don't know exactly how that went down or whatever. It's been kind of, it's been a little vague, but they have definitely invaded at least a couple of the colonies outright 
and some of the colonies have just kind of accepted military garrisons. We have the specials, which are sort of a elite formation within the Alliance military that were supplied mobile suits, kind of the, the, the vanguard of mobile suit usage and doctrine. And they were supplied by Oz, which is seemed, it was a kind of a yeah, like a public part a public private partnership that was behind the making of the mobile suits. It's their fault that mobile suits exist. It's kind of their fault that the wars of the future are this bad. So Oz turns out to be not just a public-private partnership, but in fact a kind of wide-reaching, it's not just a sort of a, a department of the Alliance. It's in fact its own faction, which as we saw a few episodes ago, launches a sort of coup. So we have Oz. 14 is when we learn that Oz is a is itself a Matryoshka doll. Because Oz is a front. They are the armed hand of a group called the Romafeller Foundation. The Romafellers are a collection, the Romafeller Foundation, which by the way, Romafeller, really guys? It's Rockefeller, but also Rome, I guess. Just just to make sure the Pope is in there. I don't know. It's a dumb name. I, I love it, but it's very dumb. And they are all rich. They're fat cat industrialists, actual nobility, like blue blood aristocrats. They are, a lot of them appear to be European, frankly, which I don't think is an accident. Yeah. They are what Trey's is a part of. Trey's has actually, in fact, always been with the Romafellers in one way or another. So to put it another way, starting from the beginning, the Alliance exists the Romafellers decide that don't like the way the world is going. So they make Oz and convince the Alliance that the Alliance made Oz and grow Oz's power within the Alliance like a tumor. And then one day, like, or rather more like a virus, and one day the virus explodes and all the little, those little doohickeys go around and kill everything. And now Romafeller is left behind, the greedy parasite haunting Europe, if you will. Ironically, and they're going. Their aim is to bring the entire human race under the control of their genetic god-given, god, like divine right superiors. This is few, like medieval thinking at its like not even medieval thinking. This is sixteen hundreds divine right of kings level of thinking. Yeah. This is the really the I am the state yeah. kind of thing. Anyway, that. I think we should probably move forward with the episode because we got a lot of recap left, and I've yeah. actually got I built time for us to talk about the Rome colors at the end of the podcast. Yeah, just need to yeah, I just want to give some context about the actual chronology because if you are if you are confused, you're going to be confused watching it. It is it is kind of ass backwards. Anyway, Trace gets up afterwards and he makes a speech, which is really interesting. I'm going to talk about more later, but the TLDR is one: God made all men free. And by God, we mean the Christian God is heavily implied by the way he talks about it, which is weird. We'll talk about it later. Two, God could not have imagined the chaos caused by the wars of men. Or, put another way, God may have made the world, but there's no way that the God who could have made a world that was good would have imagined, would, could, would have known, been able to see just how far humans would take things. Three, if... These wars are bad, and God is good and made the world. Roma, he must think the actions of the Romafellers and Oz to reassert control over the over mankind are good 
because the wars are, that have been going on are so terrible. It's a weird speech because, as we know, Trey's thinks wolf fighting is fucking awesome. But it actually makes a lot more sense than you think it does. Relina gets up there because she is hot-blooded. She is the actual hero of the show. And she tries to give a, get up there and tell everybody the Gundams are going to come kick their ass. And nothing Oscar can do can stop them. She gets yanked off stage by Noid very quickly. But it has an effect. Because all these Robofeller guys are starting to get are, are now nervous about the Gundams that they have just remembered still exist. And like goldfish, these dudes. And they start confronting Trace about what he's going to do about it. And they want him to tell Zex to destroy the rebuild Gundam wing that he had sort of cobbled together. Trace says, fine, he'll go do it. And he just, obviously, we get some scenes and showing us how much he fucking hates the Robofellers. And also a weird thing with the, like, a kid and a peer, where he's like, Almost lets a kid fall off the pier. It's it's a weird scene. Yeah, the context of that, for those who are curious, Trey's is thinking to himself, I could tell Zex to stop doing things, but I like that he has autonomy. And as he's thinking that, a little baby starts to wander off the edge of a pier and its mother goes to grab it, and Trey's physically stops her and just sits and watches this baby on the edge of a pier, and then the baby stands up and walks back. Uh, presumably taking its first steps. It's it's very ham-fisted, but honestly, it's good. It, it, it's got the same energy as that bit from F91, where, like, what's-his-name of New Babylonia is making his speech about how fascism and monarchy are good, actually, and, like, the entire colony starts to, like, slowly fade to daylight. But you see, like, animals in the background. It has that energy. Okay, so that's the part of the episode I care about, except, or I would, except the other part has involves Troa and my favorite mech. So we go back to Troa and Hero, and Troa is, Troa ends up fighting the Oz forces around Marseille. How is it said? Uh, the Heavy Arms? No, Marseille. The, the city. Thank you. I, I so like I said, he goes to France Town, and they're at France Town again. And Troa used the heavy arms to take out um, the Oz forces so that the Oz, so Oz doesn't realize they're there. And once they've kind of made some, some breathing room and made sure that Oz's um, forces have been directed towards the Alliance and they're probably safe to do this, Hero used the opportunity to go find Marshall Naventa's granddaughter, make sure it's her. She's actually visiting, I think it's his grave? Yeah, she's she's literally visiting his grave. Tells her, hi, my name is Hiro Yui. I killed your grandfather. I didn't realize who I was doing it, and I'm very sorry. Here's a gun. I'm giving you a chance to shoot me because that's the right thing to do. Or at least I think it is. And she's so fucking mad. Like, this is horrific. And she takes the gun and points it at him. And then she just says, no. She just doesn't know, like, what would prompt him to do this super fucked up thing. And he replies that the only way, that it's the only way he knows how to live with himself. And it's ambiguous whether he means in general or in because of this one thing. Like, putting himself, like, does he mean it in putting himself in danger is the only way that he can live with himself? Or does he mean specifically this one fuck up is so bad, the only way that I know to make it right is to allow everyone that I've hurt to have the opportunity to do this. Either way, she tells him it's bad. He's going to go visit the rest of the family, which she's not super thrilled with, but she's too kind of freaked out to tell him to 
to you know to make him stop. And then we finally get a little bit of Zex, where Zex blows up the Gundam wing. He's very sad. Except surprise, fools! No, he didn't. He was lying. He just used a bunch of spare parts, put them together into a vaguely Gundam-shaped thing, and then blew them up because Rodefeller's dumb. Yup. Those guys. On that note, by the way, I I do want to note that the reason that Marshall Noventa's granddaughter doesn't stop Hero is he doesn't tell her. Yeah, no, like like she kind of like you get the I get the impression that she was she was like she wanted to call out and be like, wait, where are you going? What are you doing? But like, kind of like that kind of thing. She doesn't know he's going to go at what his whole plan is. Yeah, but she's like she can't she can barely react to him. She's so fucking freaked out. That's fair. All right. Let's do the next bit. Okay, uh, episode 15. So, Troa and Hiro meet with the last person on their list. And we do not actually see that meeting. We just see them walking out of a mansion, and Hiro's still alive. So, that's good. The entire list, by the way, is crossed out. So, they really did meet with everyone and ask if they wanted to shoot Hiro. After a brief James Bond moment where Troa drives a motorcycle into the ocean to lose a pursuer, I will not explain that. Watch this episode. Hero and Troa are contacted by Noin. Uh, remember Lieutenant Noin? She offers to escort them to Antarctica so Zex can finally get the duel with Hero he's been craving. While they're deciding what to do about that, Rolina receives a note from one of the people who Hero visited, intended for Hero. It turns out she's been trying to, like, follow his tracks and find evidence of his being alive, and she happened to run into the same person he just visited. It turns out that person is Marshall Noventa's widow, who informs Hero and Rolina through this note that her husband dying because of Hero is something she's okay with because Marshall Noventa lived his life trying to make the world a better place precisely for the kind of pa- for the kind of passionate and earnest young man hero is like she basically describes him as sort of like you are the ideal person noventa wanted to keep the world safe for it's not your fault don't kick your ass about it he would not have wanted you to it also reminds me of there's a point in the episode where he dies where noventa mentions that implies that the alliance got to the point it did because it lost its way over the course of basically stopping potentially dozens of wars. And the sardonic leftist in me when it says, yeah, right. But we're supposed to read that as very literal. Like, Noventa see, like, is very, very much on the level about we did so much shit trying to stop everything from being bad, and it just ended up bad anyway. And and you, like, kind of believe him. It's it's sad. Yeah. So, en route to Antarctica by air, with Hero, Troa, and the Heavy Arms in tow, a couple of things happen. First, Hero is still recovering from getting his ass kicked by his Gundam self-destructing, so his hands are seizing up as he tries to make the Heavy Arms move. Second... Noin realizes the group is being pursued by aircraft carriers belonging to an inspector from the Romefeller Foundation, who wants to find dirt on Zex, and thinks they tailing them will get it. She decides to head out in her Ares with one of her subordinates, and she's going to try and shoot down the carriers and divert attention away from Hero, Troa, and the Gundam. 
Unfortunately, her subordinate does what literally all of Noin's trainees do in this show, and he gets over-eager. He gets shot down, she gets surrounded while landing to protect him, and when they are surrounded by enemy Ares, the inspector does not accept their surrender because their mere presence tells him everything he needs to know about whether Zex is in Antarctica. So, that's bad for Noin. Fortunately, against her orders, the carrier ship she's been protecting swings around to save her and takes out the Marys. Unfortunately, it gets clipped by return fire and needs to make an emergency landing. Troa just goes, fuck it, I'm going to fix all of your mistakes. He deploys in the heavy arms, shoots down the enemy carriers and all of the mobile suits, but before he can silence the last mobile suit, the one the inspector's in, the guy manages to report that he has sighted a Gundam. Whoops. And that's where episode 15 leaves on that cliffhanger. Uh, so that's all the recap. It's time for discussion. So uh, first things first. Alice, you told me the Ares in this show were good. I finally believe you because... What? Yeah, the Osbecks in these four episodes are way more effective than they've ever been before. They are incredibly effective at fighting anything that isn't a Gundam. I think the Ares alone gets like so many individual kills that it kind of outnumbers the previous mechs they've shot down in all of the previous 11 episodes combined. Uh, unfortunately, the Leo has been reduced to jobbing. Yeah, I'm a little sad because like, you know, I like Leos. I'm going to be real. I always prefer that the enemy feel dangerous and frightening throughout. Uh, but I know that I'm alone in that. But God, the Ares are so cool. Yeah. I genuinely love them. They're really great. I always thought they were cool. I fucking love that they just look like they have the cool dude aesthetic. Yeah. God, they're so neat. I just like them. Okay. Hero and Troa being together is great. You were really happy about that. We were kind of pre-gaming talking um, on the balcony while I had a smoke. And you were like, really, really just loved that. Tell me a little bit about that. Talk to me about it. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for setting me up for this. So, <laughs> all right, we had some technical difficulties, but everything is fine. Awesome. <laughs> all right, where were we? I should not have let you have a soundboard. I wish I had, like, um, the soundboard that Panda has so that I could do, like, the sirens. Because it's dope. Anyway. Okay, so I, we just... You were going to tell me about Hero and Troa and their yes, time I together in the, here in the Civil War arc, um, the first Civil War. Tell me about it. First Civil War arc? Oh dear, I haven't seen the back half of this show and now I'm scared. Hero and Troa are great together. So thus far, one of the interesting things is that aside from Wufei, all the Gundam pilots have really had time to kind of pair off with each other. Actually, I take that back. Wufei got to pair off with Troa, so even he got a little bit of this. Uh, we've seen Duo and Quatra, we've seen Quatra and Troa, we've seen Duo and Hero, now we're getting to see Troa and Hero. They're great together. My favorite thing about them is they kind of bring out the best in each other. Troa is usually very, very deadpan, but he gets along really well with Hero, who is equally sort of reserved. Hero is less weird around him and awkward than he was with Duo, and we actually get to see a couple of 
elements of Hiro's personality come out here. Like, despite the fact that Hiro is, like, very, very thorough when he sets his mind to a task and kind of pursues it with a single-minded vigor and efficiency, he's also very impulsive. He has been the whole time, but it really comes out in his interactions with Troa. When Troa is talking to him about how he feels that Hero is braver than he is for making the choice to self-destruct, Hero just looks at him and says, If you're planning on doing this, I only have one thing to say to you. It hurts like hell. And Troa just cracks up. It's a great joke. Very dark, but a very good joke. Troa, when he is asking Hero for advice on what to do about the performance at the Ozbase, explicitly kind of asks him, should I self-detonate? And Hero just tells him to go with his gut. Because that's what Hero does. Yeah. It's like it's one of those things where it's like, at first when I heard that, I was like, that's really not how Hero usually talks. And then, like, but looking back, it's like, no, it's not how he usually explains himself to people because he never explains himself. But it makes perfect sense with his character and how he's been acting this whole time. Hero's always been kind of impulsive, and it's really great seeing that get to play out with Troa. Uh, it's also great watching Troa kind of be sort of the ace. It is very abundant in this spat of episodes how good of a mech pilot Troa's always been, and how he's kind of secretly been the best of the group at all of his operational everything. So, uh, yeah, I really like them. Since you batted that one to me, Alice, I think it's time to bat this one to you, because you've been looking forward to talking about it for a while. Troa's speech at the about God that he gives to the Romefeller Foundation. Uh, yes, Troa's speech about uh, God. Troa's yes. Trace's speech about God, excuse me, it, to the Romefellers. Uh, talk to me about that, because there's a couple of ways to take it. I will, but actually, I have something much worse to do first. What? So what you're telling me is that Hero is is mono red and Troa is more like blue and white. I hate you. <laughs> I love you and I hate you at the same time. We're gonna get into <laughs> Magic the Gathering discourse on our Gundam podcast and I'm gonna cry. Sure, fine, yes. I'm completely okay but with yeah. this reading. Troa's canonically isn't. I rest my fucking case. No, he's not. Um. Anyway. Okay, yeah, I want to talk about Trace's weird speech. So, just to give you kind of the what the surface level here, uh, Trace is making an argument. His argument is that he's attempting to justify Romafeller's actions and to argue that their actions are just. To remind you, their actions are engineering the death of the alliance, the the world government's leadership, conducting a lightning fast uh, internecine conflict, invading multiple countries and creating a new global hegemony that is more centralized and explicitly autocratic. Oh, and also, probably they were the ones who were antagonizing the colonies, using the Alliance as a proxy in the first place, and they sold the Alliance government the weapons to make a desert in colonies. Yeah, they've done a lot of atrocities. So, this is his argument for justifying this. One, God created the world. Two, God either could not have foreseen or did not intend for mankind to use the freedom of and the resources of the world they were given to do the atrocities that they have done, to do the bad things they have done. 
three, God would not want them to do this. This one's not exactly explicit. It's implied in four. The heavens would therefore agree with, assent to, and condone what Romafeller and therefore Oz does to correct this, these injustices. Mankind got out of control. Oz through Romafeller through the through Oz is simply pruning the garden and getting things back to where they should have been a long time ago. I said earlier that like the way that he talks about it to me and I, I think to you as well kind of implies that he is this conception of God is weirdly Judeo-Christian. I, I say Judeo-Christian. I, side note, that is a dumb phrase. Ask me about it later. It's basically a Christian version of God. Very, very vaguely. Trays and the Royal Fellows in general are kind of coded as being very European. I mean, it's the it's the fucking name. Romafeller. Yeah. Like, the city of Rome, the Rockefeller family. I mean, the name is essentially all but screaming, this is the alliance of the old men of Europe and the, the powers that be with the moneyed men of the New World and elsewhere. Industry and good breeding joining hands together over the pyre of humanity. And um, he talks about God, Kami, and the sense of a God who has a specific will for mankind. I'm a lot as familiar with, with Shinto, but I get the feeling that that's not really an idea you get a lot. No, that is very... Shinto, insofar as there are gods in Shinto... Because he says God, like a capital G. Yeah, like there's in not notably like he doesn't just he doesn't just say Kami. Like that would mean something okay. very different. He uses Kamisama, which is basically the agreed upon translation in Japanese for the Christian God. If someone is talking about the Christian God in Japanese to a Japanese audience, that's how they'll refer to them. Um, do we know if this, I, I was curious if, because it could also kind of fit into the way that you see in a lot of classical Chinese texts referring to sort of the, the will or mandate of heaven. This idea that like the heaven as a kind of broadness, which has sort of a quote, quote like the heavenly emperor kind of thing. There's not idea of that, but really heaven itself has a kind of nebulous will for what is good. That could also kind of, it, it's not entirely not there, but yeah, like we talked about the Kamisama thing and how that is, seems kind of significant as well as the European coding. Yeah, um, as far as the mandate of heaven, like I will step in real quick here to, because I actually know something about this. So, okay. I okay. did pay attention to the words Zex is using, or not, not Zex, Trey's is using in the speech, just in case we wanted to go into a discussion about it. And with the caveat that I am not fluent in Japanese, I have a very limited vocabulary, and you should not mistake me for even someone with a first-year level of understanding of the language. There's some language that is, like, particular to the whole idea. Because, like, Man of Heaven thing is known in Japan. That did have an influence on Japan, you run into similar phrases. Yeah, like, it, it's not a Japanese concept, per se, but it is one that is definitely familiar. Yeah, it is It is known in Japan. 
the language Trey's uses very explicitly avoids words that would be connected to that. He doesn't even use the word for heaven. Uh, there is a specific Japanese word that is often translated as heaven, Tengoku, and he never says it once. He specifically okay. talks about God as a individual personage. So he's not talking about, like, a mandate from the laws of nature in heaven, as if heaven were an impersonal sort of concept. He's speaking very directly about either a Christian or deist version of God. Uh, I think when we pregame this, I kind of compared the language he uses to being somewhere between somewhere around where like the uh the deist movement of like the uh the 19th century yeah i should also clarify when i say the christian conception of god i meant more as i i'm not specifically to like yeah i, I want to say that i'm not i'm not implying a lot of things that could be there it's more of the idea of a singular being who created the world yeah D does trace believe in jesus and was he a methodist discuss <laughs> well, obviously he's not a Calvinist because the second point is uh, it's translated as God could not have foreseen, which is a weird fucking thing to say unless, speaking of deism, so I was kind of going to get into this that um, it's that's a very clockmaker way of viewing uh, divinity. And it's very much a deist thing. It's very much a 18th century european way of seeing god which makes sense because all these fuckers in this room look like they're out of 1780 fucking concert of europe yeah uh, by the way i actually did do some research about japan's conception of the mandate of heaven as a side note because this is kind of interesting the taiho code uh that's in this in the eighth century that was like kind of a it's a big moment in japanese history uh and i might be pronouncing that wrong i'm, I'm sorry uh, is it T-A-I-Y-O-U or T-A-I-O? T-A-I-H-O. T-A-I-A-H-O? T-A-I-H-O. I hope. Okay, I have to say it right. Yay! It was an adaptation of the governmental system of the Tang Dynasty. But specifically, one of the things it left out was the mandate, like anything suggestive of the mandate of heaven, specifically was omitted. Partially because the Imperial House of Japan, that would come later, would actually claim to be like, you know, the unbroken descendant, like back way back in the day, Amaterasu Amaterasu is like our great 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 grandmother. So the situation there was very different. And so the concept of the mandate of heaven, which has a lot of baggage to it, doesn't really get in there in the same way. The divine right of kings means something very different there. The man like the idea of sort of a supernatural underpinning of royal power means something very different in Japan than it does in, say, medieval China. But anyway, so a second point is that God couldn't have foreseen it. So apparently God is not that active, or rather he likes to work through other forces because point three and slash four is uh, the Romafellers are cleaning it up, and obviously God would approve of it because he, he would not have approved of what mankind did with its freedom. Underneath the surface of that, there's a there's a couple of, of points that he is implying, but not really expanding on. The first of which is that mankind's freedom is inherently dangerous. Whereas the guy before him just straight up says democracy is bad, well, he argues more that 
people's unrestrained freedom creates a situation wherein if everyone can kind of do whatever the fuck they want to do, it's like that big in the book, in the book of judges, this refrain of, and every man did right in what was right in his own eyes. It's this idea of if anybody can do anything, then they will. And it's very, uh, Thomas Hobbes. Yeah. It's very nature and tooth and claw. (laughs) And obviously by smushing everybody, like you would a goddamn cat, you create a situation where people are no longer able, not necessarily to have no freedom in their lives, but they no longer, the vast majority of humanity has been cut off from the freedom of trying to muck up the world, doing big things, and centering that into someone else's hands. We will, of course, we also get the scenes afterwards, which contextualize that entire thing, where we watch Trey's despise these fuckers i'm cursing so much he despises them which makes the whole speech weird because it lines up with his idea of this sort of aristocratic the good the people who are who are worthy of being in charge should be because they can fix the world and obviously mankind is chaotic and messed up and needs to be fixed in his eyes but on the other hand he does not see the Rollefellers, who are the aristocrats that we have previously s- said were kind of seemed to be who we wanted to be in charge. They're not worth it. They're not worthy. There is something about them that he finds detestable. So we now we have a sort of question, which is after this speech of, okay, Trace is an actual ideology, and we have not been privy to it. There's a missing element here. What is actually the element that makes Trace's whole thing hang together we're gonna get that element i'm not gonna talk about it here because it actually is a there's a whole episode where we get it we get a whole fight about it and i think once we get to that point which will be in the next episode trace's ideology is something we're gonna have to talk about in depth because it's not good but it is not what you expect going in there is something more there's something more going on. It's probably safe for me to say Trey's seems to be sort of this weird proto-fascist like uh, autocrat in the beginning. And we have now seen there's more to Trey's. It's the Roma fellers who are just unironically that. Yeah. There's nothing else to them. But Trey's got something else that separates him from them. They have very different views of who actually should be. Involved. Yeah. So, yeah, like being being clear, like just to like get down to brass tacks, we're in agreement then that Praise's speech here is not made fully in good faith. He's to an yeah. extent he's saying versions of things he believes in a way he thinks that the Roma fellers will find acceptable, but he's not actually being honest. It's not that he's lying to them. I think it's it's more that he has edited what he believes so that he is taking out the parts where oh and by the way i hate all of you and you're not the people who should be in charge but the underlying parts where they the parts where they overlap are what we're getting here yeah i i agree okay yeah and that leaves us there's two other points i want to hit before we wrap up so speaking of people who trays likes let's talk about zex so zex actually got its uh, quite a little bit of character development in these few episodes. Uh, one of these four yeah, episodes is almost entirely about him. And 
I have two questions I really want to answer at, at, as a unit together. Because Zex is doing the honorable knight thing here and deliberately trying at great personal risk to set up a one versus one duel with Hero. He didn't get to finish his fight with Hero back a couple of episodes ago because Hero exploded. So now he wants to duel without anyone interrupting them. And he's going out of his way to rebuild the wing so they can have this one fight. First off, why does he want to fight Hero so badly? Is it really just that he feels super bad and feels a, lo a large personal distaste for fighting handicapped opponents and wants to kind of like get a do-over on that fight? Or do we think there's something else there? And normally I'd pitch this to you, but since you just talked for a while, do you mind if I go first and share my thoughts and then you can bump in uh, afterward or wherever you see fit? Please do. Okay. So my read on Zex and this little arc of episodes, the reason he's hyper fixated on Hero is, remember that episode where one of Zex's subordinates kamikazed literally in the tall geese? Yeah. I think the reason he's hyper fixating on Hero is Hero did something Zex felt like he couldn't do. Zex wasn't able to push the tall geese to its fullest potential because at the last second he kind of choked and realized if he kept pushing it that way, he'd die. There was a strong possibility he would just die from the, uh, the internal stress that piloting the tall geese causes the pilot. He sees himself as having failed to really master his machine. And when he got into a fight with Hero... That was initially his way of going, if I can beat this Gundam pilot using the Tall Geese, I'll have kind of proved that I am capable of leading. I am capable of mastering this machine and doing, and I will be able to do what I want to do with it. That duel got cut short, but it got cut short specifically by Hero doing something with no thought for his own safety that probably could have gotten him killed. Think about how that plays in Zex's head. Or do you see where I'm going with this? I think so, but keep going. Zex, who feels like he has failed for choking at the last second and not being able to, you know, push his machine as far as he could have because for fear of his own safety, watches this kid, much younger than him, blow up his own mech with no thought for his safety. And his first thought is, I want to have a fight with this kid again. Yeah, sure. It's entirely true that Zex doesn't like to fight people when they're at a disadvantage to him. But if that was really a thing he was super worried about, he wouldn't be launching in an experimental mech that's designed specifically to be good enough to take on whole bases on its own. What he's really hyper-fixating on here is the idea that if he can duel Hero on even footing and win, that will prove to him he has fully mastered both the Tall Geese and his own fears. If he could beat Hero straight up, he will have surpassed his previous failure, and he can finally lay some of the guilt from that to rest. I like it. I think that's a good read. Harding wants to say that there's also a degree to which there is a little bit of an ideological thing here in the sense that 
Zex and Trey's have this kind of Nietzschean romanticism going on. Oh, yeah. And of, like, you know, you know, being a warrior means, you know, like, having this conviction. And this is not really a no, but this no, and it's more of, like, a, just another way here. They both have this idea of the sort of warrior's conviction is this purest form of human expression. And Hero, who does not ascribe to this philosophy, is just out here being what they want to be effortlessly surpassing their their ideal of this and it's like yeah i want to fight him too if someone showed up not and did everything i i wanted to be was everything i wanted to be i want a rematch too if nothing else i maybe that'll get me closer to being what this kid's already is yeah yeah i feel you completely there that is also i think a large part of it i do think like specifically with zex the guilt of losing his subordinate and failing the yeah. rest of the Talgies specifically is driving him toward this one particular rematch. But it's also worth noting that, like, not only is what everything you just said true, but a running theme throughout the show so far has been that the Gundam pilots, to greater or lesser extent, fulfill all of the ideals that every single one of these factions actually cares about they are kind of with the exception of the rome fellers but the rome fellers don't have ideals they have dollar signs yeah rome fellers suck yeah so far in the story like at this level at this point i like them as an element they suck a lot they help define everybody else in reference to them yeah i am of two minds about them in that i like that they are an element in the story i wish they had been very clearly marked as the power behind Oz so much earlier in the show. You kind of talked about it earlier, but the chronology of how things are introduced in Gundam Wing is a little bit screwy because we'll sometimes... It sucks. Yeah, we will just get information like many episodes after we should have. And Rome Fellers being introduced so far after... Multiple events that make sense only in the context, really, of understanding that Oz were directly put together and funded by the Rome Fellers. That's kind of a big deal for legibility. It also would have helped to, like, get some of that. I, I just think it would have been a lot cleaner. Yeah. I will say that, like, the most direct antecedent, or not antecedent, but um, descendant series for Gundam Wing is uh, Gundam Double O. And when Double O, Double O does not have an Oz to the same extent, it introduces all of its key political actors very, very quickly in like the first three episodes. So you know who's on stage. And for about the first 15 to 20 episodes, that is all the legibility it requires. And that series is a lot more, I wouldn't say it's better than wing but it's a lot better in terms of how it handles its chronology than wing is for that yeah so that might be something we bring up if we ever get around to uh covering that series on that note we have finally come to the end of our discussion time and normally we reserve the space at the very end of the episode to talk about how we feel about the new mech designs but we don't actually have any new mobile suits introduced 
in this run of episodes. Uh, the closest thing we get is the custom paint job Ares and the custom paint job Cancer that Alex and Mueller pilot. So instead of covering all of that, it's, it's I think, time for us to sign off. So let's see here. All right, things we need to plug. I am so smart and I wrote down a quick list for myself this time. First off, if you want to contact us about the show, give us feedback, uh, suggest topics for future episodes, tell us that we suck. Don't tell us that we suck. It'll break my heart. But, you know, contact us about show stuff in general. You can find our podcast's official social media account at at SteppyCast. That's S-T-E-P-P-Y-C-A-S-T on Twitter. And let's see... Alice, I think you have a couple of other things to plug as well. Yeah. Uh, first, I'd like to thank Chip for our art for the podcast. Uh, they can be found at, I do not know how to say this, so I'm going to spell it, at A-L-V-E-O-L-A-T-E-S. And that's on Twitter, by the way. They are great artists. Their art is both really, really good and also occasionally incredibly funny. They had never drawn, they said that they hadn't really drawn a mech before uh, doing our podcast art. And frankly, I almost don't believe them because holy shit, both of them turned out really good. And wow, it's just good. Yeah, and um, you can find other podcasts that I am on and occasionally Cast is on at UtenaCast, which is U-T-E-N-A cast on Twitter. I have a podcast called Imagine Me and Utena, which we've been doing for like four years. It is pretty great. We talk about Revolutionary Girl Utena, which is a great anime from the 90s, as well as some other stuff that the direct that director has done, and just a lot of stuff in general. It's it's a lot of fun. We have guests on all the time, and Panda has some podcasts as well. If you are looking for a, any other podcasts, I highly recommend Fresh Podcast Market, which is awesome. It is a real podcast about fake podcasts. And I believe that's, yeah, that's about all the stuff I have to plug here. Yep. Uh, shout out to Panda for editing our episode. And uh, it is time for the two of us to sign off. See y'all later. Adios. I just really like it, okay? <laughs> I kind of hope Panda leaves that entire thing on and that lets that be the outro. It's just such a banger!